Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open up to John 19. Gospel of John, chapter 19. One quick comment before we uh, read the passage. Uh, evening service tonight, the uh, Matt Shiflet will be preaching the word to us, Psalm 97. You might take a look at that psalm before this evening and, uh, and do some meditating on that and then have it fed to you from the pulpit this evening. Let's stand for John 19 now, 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. The rejection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is now about to get very violent. One Roman soldier up to this point had already struck Jesus in the face. But up to this point, the chief priests of the Jews had not been able to lay a hand on Jesus. But now that the appointed time has come... The chief priests are allowed to lay hands on him. They began by arresting him and and bringing him before Annas and then Caiaphas and then Pilate, the governor of the region. To this point, the interrogation of Jesus has been peaceful for the most part, other than that strike in the face. It's really been an exchange of questions and answers. Jesus had taught, you remember Pilate, that the kingdom, his kingdom was not of this world. It was not of this realm. His goal was not to lead an insurrection against this this little tiny kingdom and, and put the little tiny Romans out of power. The Jews continue to maintain throughout this that Jesus had committed a crime worthy of death. 
He had committed a capital offense. But Pilate, all throughout this, we're seeing it, aren't we? Pilate, all throughout this, wants to weasel out of his responsibility for this whole affair. And he comes away from Jesus after questioning him and makes this declaration before the rowdy crowds of the Jews, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And yet, Pilate then mentions the custom the Romans had worked out for the Jews each year at the Passover. The Romans would release one criminal, whoever they requested, it seems. So he asks them who they want. Do they want to release Jesus this time? Even though Jesus had not been convicted of any crime by any legitimate process of law at all. The cowardly Pilate wants out but also doesn't want responsibility for releasing Jesus should something come of it. He's really in a terrible, terrible spot. The people are still intent on seeing Jesus die. After they call for Bar Abbas, a murderer and thief, a true insurrectionist, we believe, Pilate, likely immediately released him, right? They call for Bar Abbas and they release, he releases him. At the same time, he then takes Jesus, and here's where it gets violent. He has Jesus scourged. It's his next tactic, right? It's actually his next tactic to get out of having responsibility. Seems contradictory, but that's what he's doing. But the time for Jesus' physical physical suffering and mockery has arrived. So verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. It seems as if Pilate is pronouncing a sentence. And yet we, we will see him several times in the next few moments try to get out of this situation. He does not want to be involved. Pilate, with his mouth, is acquitting Jesus and yet punishing him as if he is a proven criminal. Calvin says, They who have not so much courage as to defend with unshaken constancy what is right must be driven thither and hither and led to adopt opposite and conflicting opinions. In other words, he's flailing about. Pilate is flailing about trying to figure out how to get out of this. He's flailing between what he knows to be true about Jesus and what he hears the Jews demanding of him about Jesus. He's unprepared in all of this to be principled, And he's going to be repeatedly declaring Christ's innocence before all of the Jews, right? And then single-handedly by his power, handing him over to be crucified. Maintaining his innocence, pushing him to the crucifixion. 
Adersheim, in his massive commentary on the Gospels, helps us understand this scourging. He says this, Pilate seems to have hoped that the horrors of the scourging might still move the people to desist from the ferocious cry of the cross. For the same reason, we may also hope that the scourging was not inflicted with the same ferocity as in the case of the Christian martyrs. When with the object of eliciting the incrimination of others or else recantation, the scourge of leather thongs was loaded with lead or armed with spikes and bones, which lacerated back and chest and face till the victim sometimes fell down before the judge a bleeding mass of torn flesh. But however modified, scourging was a terrible introduction to crucifixion. The immediate death, the intermediate death, they called it. Stripped of his clothes, his hands tied and back bent, the victim would be bound to a column or stake in front of the praetorium. The scourging ended, the soldiers would hastily cast upon him his upper garments and lead him back into the praetorium. And so remember, Jesus is there before Pilate and these brutish soldiers and the scheming Jews. He's there voluntarily. It's so important to understand that. Jesus is there voluntarily because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he knows he must die for you. And he was there voluntarily. He has done nothing wrong. He has lived without sin entirely. right? He had powers at hand that would have caused the ground to open up underneath all of these fools. These wicked Gentile rulers and these frenzied Jewish crowds. He had legions of angels at his beck and call, and yet he willingly endured this assault on his body. He felt the pain of every lash as we would feel it. He had asked even his father to take this cup away from him, but now he's just like a sheep before shearers, silent. Silently enduring the violence of the men he created. Why? He loved you. He loved you. The Son of God loved you, so he was silent. The Son of God loved you, so he he underwent that scourging for for unjust reasons. Why? Why did he do this? Because his Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to die in your place. This is real history. This happened in space-time. This is real history. These are not stories. These are not childhood books. These are not myths. These are not fiction written by English authors in the 20th century. There was no turning back for Jesus. The shame of these events, the utter humiliation of creatures scourging their creator did not cause him to open up that ground beneath those ants. Why? Because he had you in mind. 
He would give himself up for you. He knew you were helpless to overcome your sin and that he had to move toward the cross, that violent death, that wrath-bearing and wrath-absorbing substitutionary death, a death unlike any other man has ever died, a death with the sting of death. If he had gone any other way, we would not have been healed by these wounds. It's it's not merely violence that he faced. Lashes that opened up the flesh on his back. Perhaps some of us would be able to endure such a scourging. The pain might distract us from, from our hatred for the people before us. But from scourging, the soldiers turn to mockery. And for some of us proud individuals, that might have been a worse torture than the physical. To be mocked publicly. We might rather be punched in the face than humiliated before anybody else. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Imagine the angels witnessing such a spectacle. Angels who serve God day and night doing his His will, looking on to see the one they always honored being dishonored by men. And those men who bore God's image, who had something the angels lack, had through the ages lived in sin and filled the earth with violence. And they're now scourging and mocking the very Son of God. If angels are capable of anger, this would lead them all to righteous indignation. And again, the Son of God silently endures this humiliation. Right? They dress him up like a ragtag king. They smash a halo of a halo of thorns on his head. They robe him with the color of, of a king. And dance around him, smacking him in the face. Think of those individual men that did that. Think of those proud Roman soldiers ignorantly approaching omnipotence and thinking that a smack in the face was its due. Thinking that a backhand to the jaw might make for a good story that night when they went home and returned to their families' houses. You should have seen it when I... Think about that crown of thorns. He wears a crown of thorns that you may one day wear a crown of glory. He wears on his head a symbol of the curse. Those thorns and thistles. Right? Ryle, quoting Lightfoot, writes, It was a most unquestionable token that Christ's kingdom was not of this world when he was crowned only with thorns and briars, which are the curse of the earth. 
It was a striking symbol of the fall being laid on the head of our divine substitute. The whole fall symbolized in those thorns. And yet there is Jesus enduring it because he loved you. He is just. He is holy. You are unjust. You are unholy. And with each smack, his love and concern for you is inflamed. Not some sort of vindictive anger. Every time he's hit in the face, his love burns deeper for each of you. He does not have an ego that he must protect. He does not protect his reputation. He submits himself to this wickedness because he loves you and he cares for you and most assuredly will make it to that cross. Where your sins will be atoned for. Pilate, Pilate is flailing about, looking for a way to retain his power, to retain his reputation, to retain his position, right, to retain his dignity, and he is making a mess of it. And now, through the ages, Pilate is enshrined in our constant recitation of the Apostles' Creed as the one responsible for the crucifixion of God's Son. So much for protecting his reputation. Jesus, on the other hand, is calmly facing his accusers and his captors and his judges and his persecutors. Pilate wants to humiliate Christ and it only leads Jesus to his eternal glory as the Lamb of God. Instead, Pilate, who likely ordered these soldiers to perform this act of slapping Jesus on the face, earns for himself infamy. Infamy, forever stamped in the eternal word. Have no sympathy for Pontius Pilate. All he had to do was release an innocent man. And yet, look at Jesus. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He entrusted himself to God because God judges righteously, and Pilate, not righteously. And the rottenness, think of this, the rottenness of the souls of the Jews is demonstrated by the fact that they look on this innocent man They look on this godly man. They look on this man who had performed miracles amongst them, right? And they have no pity. None. No pity at all. In fact, just the opposite. Even though they witness the brutal mocking of this man, they are not satisfied. They want him to die. They want him to die as a spectacle, right? And Pilate is left flummoxed. He thought they would be satisfied with this short humiliation, the scourging and the slaps in the face. He was like, that's enough, isn't it? He's still without an escape.
So do I need to mention to you that God's word holds forth this example of Christ's suffering silently as an example to us? passage I quoted earlier from Peter's first letter, while being reviled, he did not revile in return, begins this way. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not vile, revile in return. This is set as an example for us in how we're to suffer. And it's like, how in the world? This moment in the life of Christ when he is being reviled and not responding, not giving back what he is receiving, is an example that we are to imitate. In other words, we are to suffer well. We are to endure persecution and pray for those who persecute us. Does this mean we don't ever make appeals to Caesar? As the apostle did, no. Does it mean that we obey unrighteous decrees from authorities over us? No, the apostles did so. But what they did not do when they suffered for preaching the gospel was begin an insurrection. Does it mean that we should never use the legal apparatus to fight important issues like religious freedom? No. But it means that we should, you know, what does it mean, okay? What does it mean for us to imitate Christ in his silence before these soldiers slapping his face. What does it mean to not return reviling when we are reviled? Well, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? It means having something other than your own rights, your own well-being, and your own comfort in mind. I even said rights. It means remembering that there is power in the act of submission. It may feel good to get a good zinger in after somebody has insulted you, even or especially when it's a family member. But there is great power in silently enduring, especially when it's your own children who are insulting you best to silently endure. In fact, in just moments, Jesus would be praying for these soldiers who mocked him in this way, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Oh, man. Are you serious? They do not know what they are doing. It really is quite silly to blame the blind for being blind. They're dead. They, they do, don't know what they're doing. It is silly to blame the blind for being blind, by which I mean it is really quite unreasonable for us to be angry at those who hate us when they are blind to the truth and dead in their sins. Yet so often we care more about our reputation than we do about the souls of the dead and blind. Okay? I don't know... 
what this example of Christ silently enduring mockery means for you specifically, each of you specifically. But I know that all of us can apply it somewhere. I know that all of us have many opportunities to return kindness for evil. But it takes a mind that cares more about eternal things than it does about our own precious egos. Right? We have to wean ourselves from our, our precious reputations and have in mind the things of God. Look for a time to put this into practice this week. Look for a time to refrain from defending yourself and see how it goes. See how it goes. See what it leads to. When John Huss was martyred, as he was brought out to be burned, they put something over his head, and it had, it had on it three pictures of devils and the word heretic written on it. It's reported that when he saw it, he said, My Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake, did wear a crown of thorns. Why should not I, therefore, for his sake, wear this publicly shameful crown. You know, he could have objected to it. He could have, he could have fought. But he's like, Christ wore, wore thorns. It's only appropriate that I would wear this. My shame would be, you know, my false accusations and shame would be demonstrated to the world. So wear those insults of people who hate your God as a crown of thorns. And bless those who persecute you. Now Pilate comes back out to the Jews who have witnessed Jesus being mocked by the Roman soldiers. And Pilate hopes that that display will cause them to relent in their screaming for Jesus to be crucified. He says, behold, I am um, bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. There he is once again announcing the fact that he finds no guilt in Jesus. He has done no crime. He has done nothing wrong. He finds him guilty of nothing. And then coming up from behind Pilate, I imagine, out walks our Savior, bleeding from his torn back and his ripped up head, wearing this purple robe, weak. And he's paraded as a spectacle before these angry Jews. And Pilate, looking on, says, Behold the man. How did he say those words? You know, we don't have in our scriptures a recording of how he said those words, but how you read those words makes a big difference on how you're interpreting Pilate. Was it with pity, with a hanging of his head, behold the man? Or was it in contempt with laughter, behold the man? Or was it, behold the man? You know, some sort of strength. Remember, Pilate is in self-protect mode. He wants out of this situation. He wants the crowds to cease their hostility and move on. I think he says, behold the man as a sort of argument with the people. He's saying, 
Look at how pathetic this guy is. Behold the man. That's what he's saying. What he suffered already, doesn't that satisfy you? Behold the man. He's nothing. I mean, look at him. He's nothing. A man and now a humiliated man. He's not a threat. I mean, look at the pathetic thing. What a loser. That's what he's saying. It's his argument with the crowds. Of course, Pilate doesn't know what he is saying. This is the man. The one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, right? He doesn't know that he's speaking prophetically in a sense, but alas, Pilate does not get what he had hoped for. The chief priests and temple officers, when they said, when they when they saw him, cried out, Crucify. Crucify. They just all cried out, Crucify. Their zeal to see Jesus dead had not abated. They were not satisfied with scourging and mocking and humiliation of the man. Nothing but death would do for them, right? We do like to thoroughly punish our enemies, don't we? I think of Jonah in this regard, right? He was sent to call Nineveh to repentance and he would not go. Why? Because he did not want the gracious God to be gracious to those despicable Ninevites, those filthy Ninevites, those filthy Gentiles. He flees from God, God deals with him, then at last he goes to Nineveh and does what God told him to do. And in announcing that God is going to judge them, the people actually repent. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are an angry God. No, for he's objecting. He says, for I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. You remember what the Lord says then? Do you have reason to be angry, Jonah? (laughs) Jonah wanted to see those filthy Ninevites die with a fire from heaven. He wanted their wickedness to lead to their utter destruction. He did not want to see them repent and receive God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, we are the same way at times, right? We are so set on asserting ourselves that we would rather see our enemies die than repent. If indeed we have any enemies, we would rather see pagans punished than turn to Christ. We would rather see those who who do us wrong suffer than fall before us and ask for our forgiveness. We want blood, and that is precisely how those chief priests were acting. The only proper punishment of Jesus was death. The only satisfying punishment of Jesus was death. The only thing that would make them stop their frenzied crying out for crucifixion was 
the actual crucifixion. They were not men who treasured treasured mercy. They were not men who cared much for forgiveness. They were not men who feared to take vengeance into their own hands. They were therefore not men who knew the first thing about their Father in heaven who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in mercy and one who relents concerning calamity. They did not have the mind of Christ, did they? Pilate is frustrated that his plan had not worked out on the hearts of these hard-hearted priests and their servants. He responds in frustration. Well, then take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Oh, man, he's, he's pulling his hair out. It's spoken in frustration because it doesn't make any sense, right? He just blurts this out. The chief priests are there because they can't put him to death. Pilate knows that better than anybody else. Right? Pilate must do it. He, he's seemingly telling them that, that you know, I, I give you license to do that, but I will not be the one laying hands on him. The chief priests persist in their wickedness and say, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Ah, interesting. They're changing their charge, aren't they? They are charging now Jesus with blasphemy, a violation of the Ten Commandments. They see that the charge of insurrection is not working. That had been their first approach to this Roman. So they changed their tactics and charged Jesus with blasphemy. The first charge of insurrection had just been a ploy to manipulate Pilate. Now they show what they're really about. Pilate will need now to take an interest in the laws of the Jews if he pronounces a sentence of death. He will need to uphold their law. And what law? Well, Leviticus 24, 16, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Capital case. Blasphemy. So angry are they that the very word of God is blinding them to what is happening before them. They claim the inscripturated word of God against the incarnate word of God. Now take a step back. What is it that the chief priests and the temple servants are doing? They are announcing that they have heard Jesus testify about who he is and they reject his testimony. Remember? They reject his testimony. Remember back in John 10? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews then picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work. We do not stone you but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. If you called them God's to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. It's not the fullness of time yet. Now you see the calcification of the hearts of these Jews is being shown in their response to Jesus. Now, missing the day of their visitation, missing the Messiah in their midst, they yell, crucify! So hard are their hearts that they want the Romans, whom they abominate, to do them a solid and kill their Messiah. Their hardness of heart has made them cry out for the death of the Son of God. Those looking for the Messiah call for the crucifixion of the Messiah. The sin of the chief priests, envy, had so hardened their hearts that they hated the very salvation of God. And so, following that line, one final application from Scripture for us. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You, dear brothers and sisters, could very easily go the way of the chief priests. You've been taught about the Messiah. You've been taught about Jesus Christ. He's been publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes from the pulpit of this church. And yet, there may come along an idol that you want to serve. And it will deceive you. It will deceive you. It will steal salvation from you as you serve it, right? It will... will falsely assure you. It will be a super Messiah for you. It will be something that is so satisfying for a few minutes that tears you away from the one true living God. These chief priests knew God's word. And they just want Jesus off and gone and dead as a memory. Fight against the deceitfulness of sin. Repent of sins that have you trapped right now. Because they will lead you further and further and further down and harden and harden and harden your heart.
fight against them. Do not follow the example of those waiting for the Messiah, calling for the crucifixion of the Messiah. Amen. We'll come back to this next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we love your son. We love him for his his glorious silence, his powerful submission, his unequaled humiliation, his prayer for his enemies, his love for those who persecuted him. And Father, we thank you that he was the unblemished Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world, who died for my sins and the sins of the dear brothers and sisters who are here. Oh God, may we rejoice in that. May we contemplate the glory of the cross, the glory of the death of the Son of God. May our hearts be filled with thanksgiving. May we offer a continual offering of praise for the the glory of of the incarnation and the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension, and session and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.